Welcome to the second Christmas special of the Underground Christian Broadcast. This is December 26th, the day after Christmas. Last week, we looked at that contentious issue of the virginity of Mary and saw that her virginity was necessary to fulfill the prophecies of God, as well as getting the right man in place to be future king of the world. The virginity of Mary is just one of several contentious biblical events that Bible mockers just love to mock. Today we're going to look at another one of the things they like to mock in the men who drop by for Christmas in Bethlehem. At first glance, this event, the, the wise men event, might appear to be somewhat of a non sequitur, something that intrudes on the birth story, but it actually serves an important purpose in the book of Matthew, which is the only place that the story is found in Scripture. Each gospel account serves a slightly different purpose. Mark, for example, presents Jesus as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, whose work as a compassionate healer is shown in contrast to the brutality that men inflicted on him. Isaiah 53.3 says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Luke presents Jesus as a prophet who would come after Moses and teach what men needed to know about God. Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. John presents Jesus primarily as deity, a very different book, as, as God in human flesh, especially as referenced in Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. All of these gospel accounts present important attributes of Christ. But today, we're going to focus on the book of Matthew. Matthew presents Jesus as the promised king of Israel, a promise that was expressly made to King David in 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, where it says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, that means when he's dead, I will set up for your seed after you, who will come from your body, meaning his descendants, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The book of Matthew is the book that emphasizes the kingship of Jesus. Kings are politicians who run governments, and they derive their power from, well, not the consent of the governed. To see where they get their power from, let's look at a fundamental law, at least in countries that accept biblical, moral, and legal principles, that states that a creator of a thing owns that thing, the law of possession. If you write a song or a book, then you own it. If you design and build a new gizmo that does some whirly thing, then you own it. You can transfer some or all of your ownership rights to another person or entity, but unless you do, you own it, legally. God is very fussy about legalities because he owns things. In Genesis 1.1, the prophet said, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in John 1.3, he added, All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So everything that exists comes from and was made by God. Since God made everything, according to the principle of ownership, he must own everything. You don't have to take my word for it, because God told us himself in Exodus 19.5, where it says, Now therefore, if you, he's talking to the Israelites, will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. As of the writing of Exodus, God had not deeded the ownership of the earth over to anyone. He owned it, and he still does. In fact, 
he owns not just the earth, but everything on the earth, including human beings and demons and Satan. So God owns everything and everyone. So do kings within the boundaries of their authority. So in a political construct, God is the de facto king of the earth. Kings are absolute owners of things. They, they are the law. One of the things that kings do is delegate their responsibilities downward, or their authorities. Moses, for example, was God's delegated leader of the ancient Israelites. He was responsible for managing this large group of people. Initially, Moses tried to make all the decisions for these people, but in Exodus 18, his father-in-law Jethro rebuked him for doing so. It says, So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. I will give you counsel. Select from all the people and able men, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. Rulers typically delegate their authority downward as exemplified by Moses, but that does not mean that they give up their authority. It just means they utilize assistance to help implement their authority. This idea of delegation began with God way back in Genesis 2 when he said, So God created man in his own image, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Subduing the earth and claiming dominion over it is simply a downward transfer of authority from God to human beings. Another downward transfer of authority that God made went from him to Satan. At some point in the past, God made Satan ruler over the earth. In John 14.30, Jesus testified that Satan is ruler of the world. I will no longer talk much to you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. We like to think that Jesus is the ruler of the world, but if you look around, it doesn't much look like he is. Now, we have to parse these terms a little bit. A ruler is not necessarily a king. A king has absolute authority, whereas most rulers have delegated authority. Jesus currently rules in heaven while seated at the right hand of God the Father, who is king. Jesus earned his rulership through his obedience to the Father in his crucifixion and ascension at the end of his first trip to the earth. But that rulership is in heaven, not on earth. The implementation of his ruling authority on earth is still in the future and will only be realized when he returns to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. For now, the delegated authority to rule on the earth lies in the hands of Satan. Nevertheless, Jesus is the present king of Israel even if they don't know it. And the story of the wise men is the story of how he officially got recognized as such. It begins with the overthrow of the last Judean king in 586 BC, when the Neo-Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, sacked Jerusalem and deported most of the remaining Judeans to distant parts of the empire. Remember, there were two parts of of the kingdom after uh, the kingdom broke apart after Solomon. There was the what's known as Israel. Those are the northern kingdom. And then there is Judea, which includes Judea and Benjamin. That's the southern kingdom. By this point in history, the northern kingdom had already been basically wiped out, and we were down to the southern kingdom. And so he's talking to the southern kingdom. 
This was the last and third deportation of the populace, which is how kings in those days dealt with defeated enemies. It was a pretty effective way to make sure that they could not reorganize and threaten the empire's rule. So over the next 500 years leading up to the birth of Christ, the Jews never regained full control over their land and never placed a king on the throne. During that time, Israel was raided and ruled by a succession of empires, including the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and a few others, because the land area of Israel was very strategic. It was positioned between the northern kingdoms of the Greeks and Persians and the southern kingdom of Egypt. The main trade routes went across Israel, so control of the territory generated a lot of tax revenue for whoever controlled it. Around 332 BC, Alexander the Great arrived and he ushered in the Greek era that had a lasting effect on the entire region. When the Alexandrian Empire broke apart, the Greek influence continued with incursions into Israel by the Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt and the Greek Seleucid dynasty dynasty of Syria and Turkey. Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the Seleucid rulers, was so brutal and sacrilegious that he triggered the Jewish Maccabean revolt in 167 BC which lasted until 134 BC, when the Maccabees finally gained a semblance of autonomy from Greek rule. That began the era of Hasmonean rule, and the Hasmoneans being the royal family of the Maccabees, who traced their lineage back to Levite priests. But their rule wasn't going to last very long. In 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey captured Jerusalem, and in 47 BC, the Roman emperor Julius Caesar appointed Hyrcanus II ethnarch of Judea. Hyrcanus was a Hasmonean Maccabee, but he was so weak that he could not maintain control of the area. This allowed Antipater, an Idumean, to infiltrate the power structure and be declared procurator, which is financial agent, of Judea. I know this is a lot of history, but believe me, this is the shortened background version, so we're getting there. Antipater installed his two sons as governors, Phasael over Jerusalem and Herod over Galilee. Yes, that Herod. At age 25, Governor Herod thought quite a lot of himself as he hunted down a bandit king named Hezekiah, and when he caught him, he had him executed, and did so without having a trial before the Sanhedrin, which was a violation of Jewish law. And the Sanhedrin didn't really appreciate his disregard for Jewish law, so they turned on him and they forced him to flee to Damascus. In 43 BC, civil war broke out in Judea, and his father Antipater was assassinated. Herod and Phasael sided with the Romans in the war and were rewarded by Mark Antony with the titles of Tetrarch. Then, two years later in 40 BC, the Parthians invaded, and they set out to hunt down all the Roman leaders, of which Herod and Phasael were two of them. Phasael was unable to evade them, so he took his own life. Tells you what the Parthians were going to do to them. But his brother Herod was clever, and he managed to escape to Rome. He went straight to the Senate and lobbied them to declare him king of Judea despite his lack of an army or any legitimate claim to the throne. Whatever he said worked because the Roman Senate rewarded him with the title of king of the Jews. While most kings were expected to raise their own army, the Romans overlooked that little deficiency and they gave him some of their own crack troops to get him started. So, in 39 BC, Herod's makeshift little army landed at Ptolemy near the modern city of Acre and quickly gathered some local dissidents to fight with him. Although he didn't have immediate success at killing his opponents, he was a fast learner. So it only took him until 37 BC, two years later, to gain control over the entire country. Herod had finally realized the dream of his life. He was king of the Jews, and it didn't matter to him at all how he accomplished it, or that he got the title from the pagan Romans. 
Herod loved being king, and he coveted that title right up to the day of his death. He coveted it so much that he spent the first 12 years of his kingship hunting down and killing all of his potential political challengers, including his own lovely wife. So that tells you a little bit about the character of King Herod. So let's pick up the story in Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So who are these mysterious men who suddenly show up in Jerusalem asking a bunch of questions? Well, the term wise men is a description of who they are more than it's a designation. In the Greek, the word that was translated wise men is magos or magi, and the magi were no ordinary men. They were Zoroastrian priests and intellectuals from western Persia, which is modern-day Iran, who were considered experts in science, astrology, medicine, and most importantly, occult magic. They were the intellectual elites of the ancient Near East, which may explain the use of the term wise men in the translations. The Magi inherited their positions from their families, and they served as court officials in the Median, Babylonian, Persian, and Medo-Persian empires. 600 years before Matthew was written, they served as experts in the Babylonian court, as documented in the book of Daniel. In the classic end-time prophecies of Daniel 2 and 4, Daniel could interpret dreams that the Magi could not interpret because he had God on his side who told him the meaning of the dreams. That got him promoted to the position of head of the Magi by King Nebuchadnezzar, which gave Daniel unprecedented access to their brain trust. There's little doubt that Daniel instructed the Magi in Old Testament scriptures and God's prophecies, as the Magi would have naturally sought to understand as much of this diverse knowledge as possible. They were a kind of living university of the ancient world. Daniel's instructions would also explain why they appeared in Jerusalem at the birth of Christ, which we're going to get to shortly. The Magi were very astute politically, so they made sure to keep themselves in the good graces of royal royal families. One of their duties was to officially recognize new kings, which provided the king with a mark of status and legitimacy from the top priests and intellectuals, and at the same time gave the Magi great access to power and influence within the court, not to mention money. That function earned them the title of kingmakers. The Magi became extremely wealthy, and when they headed out of town for a function, they would travel in a large caravan of camels and horses with their support entourage of cooks and servants in tow. They also took along a sizable armed military escort for protection, as moving around the Middle East with a lot of expensive goods made them a very tempting target for brigands. So one bright sunny day, this huge caravan rolls into Jerusalem, and the leaders of the caravan start asking a lot of questions about a baby who was born king of the Jews. News of the Magi's arrival quickly got to Herod, at which point the account says that he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Yeah, I bet he was. You see, Persian kingmakers entering Jerusalem looking for a child who could challenge his authority would surely unsettle this paranoid homicidal maniac, and everyone in town knew it. Persians were not viewed as peaceful visitors in the Roman Empire, but as potential invasion threats. The Romans had never been able to conquer and subjugate the Persians, although Roman legions had tried historically. 
For their part, the Persians made regular raiding intrusions into Roman territories in a campaign of intimidation. So from Herod's perspective, here were these unwelcome and potentially threatening Persians escorted by a large contingent of soldiers. To make matters worse, Herod was at a military disadvantage because most of his soldiers had been sent away to put down an insurrection in another part of the territory. So he found himself a little short-staffed with soldiers at that particular moment. So yeah, he was a little troubled. Verses 4 to 5. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, his own brain trust, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. Now Herod was a Jew, sort of, but a really bad one who needed the priests and lawyers to tell him the details about this prophesied king. Mostly, he just wanted to know where the kid was so he could go down there and kill him. Problem solved. Verses 7 and 8. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, Bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. So Herod called the Magi to his palace secretly and inquired of them when the star appeared. The meeting needed to be held in secret because he didn't want to tip off the usurper's family that he was on to them. But why did he care about the star? That mysterious star. Because the star was the key to certain prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. Daniel had instructed the Magi about this, so they knew that something important was on the divine schedule. In fact, the prophecies provided a timeline for the coming of Messiah. The details of that timeline are too complicated to cover today, and there are some modern disagreements as to the precise timing of events, but the Magi were obviously not confused. They understood the meaning of the prophecies and had been waiting for a sign. That sign came in the form of what most Bibles translate as a star, which is the word aster in the Greek. Now, no one knows exactly what this word refers to, but what it probably does not refer to is a star in space. First of all, I'm not aware of anywhere else in Scripture where there is an allusion to a star that would have directional attributes, other than the ordinal directions of the northern star and the eastern star, which have other meanings. More importantly, it's not possible to associate a star with a position on the Earth other than the northern star, and they weren't going to the North Pole. Now, I suppose it could have been a new star that didn't move and therefore stood above a point on the Earth, but then why would the Magi traipse off to get underneath it? There are no prophecies that would tell them to do that. I don't think that's what happened, and I don't think they even followed the star. I know that's the common belief, but the text doesn't say they followed the star. It says they saw it in the east, in Iran. They saw it, realized its prophetic meaning in the time period when they were expecting something to happen, and set off for Jerusalem to find the Jewish Messiah since Jerusalem is the capital of the Jewish nation. As for what the star actually was, I think it is much more likely that it was the Shekinah glory, which is a physical manifestation of God. The Shekinah often appears as some form of light. It appeared as a burning bush to Moses and as a pillar of fire that led the Israelites out of bondage by night. The Shekinah appeared as a glowing fog in the temple of Solomon and it didn't depart the temple until Jesus was crucified. The missing Shekinah really shook up the rabbis according to some ancient rabbinical documents. So the star was most likely a light manifestation in the sky but not a star in space. If you think about it, what would men of that age attribute a point of light in the sky to? 
Well, obviously a star, because they didn't have artificial lights in the sky. The Magi knew when the Messiah was going to appear because of the prophecies of Daniel, and they suspected the sign of his appearance from Numbers 24:17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall arise from Israel. What better image to send off the Magi than a star? After Herod sent the Magi on their way, being sure to make them promise to tell him exactly where the adorable little baby was located, Matthew says in verses 9 and 10, When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. The star had appeared to them in the east in Persia, which was the sign to go to Jerusalem and find the baby king. Once they got their final instructions from Herod to head six miles down the road to Bethlehem, they saw the star again and were really happy because they had not seen it for some time. The star confirmed that they were on the right track, and it guided them to the house where Joseph and Mary were staying, which is not possible to do from a star in space. It is possible to guide people to a house, though, with a floating Shekinah light in the sky. Matthew continues, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Worship is afforded only to God, so this was a recognition of the divinity of Christ, even if the Magi didn't quite understand it as such. Now, the narrative doesn't say how many Magi there were, and it doesn't say how many gifts they gave. Tradition says there were three wise men, because the account lists three gifts, but there was probably a lot more than that, and they were certainly wealthy enough to give many, many more gifts if they wanted to. So why list only three? Well, maybe it's because that's all they gave, but maybe it's because these gifts were symbolic of Christ's three principal attributes that Matthew wanted to highlight, his royalty, his divinity, and his humanity. Every king gets gold. It was the most valuable commodity of the time, and it is the metal of royalty, so that makes sense. Frankincense is an expensive aromatic resin that was used by the clergy to prepare a ritual fragrance in the temple as a sweet aroma to God, and that would speak of his divinity. Myrrh is also an aromatic resin that was sometimes used as an anesthetic, such as when it was offered to Christ at the cross to kind of kill the pain a little bit, and that would speak to his humanity. But whatever the reason, and however many the gifts, these three items were expensive presents that were typical of the kind of gifts that were given to kings. Finally, the gifts had a practical purpose. Herod, filled with panic and rage over this potential threat to his throne, was going to send his troops into Bethlehem to slaughter every boy who was under three years of age just as soon as he could get them back from their mission. In the meantime, God warned Joseph in a dream to skip town and get down to Egypt where he could hang low until Herod was dead, but that was going to take some resources. These expensive gifts must have provided Joseph with the revenue that he needed to get through this difficult period. Ordinarily, people carrying such valuables would have been prime targets of thieves. But what thief is going to think that an extremely poor family on a donkey is going to be carrying those kind of things in their pack? The gifts would have been small enough to hide and not really draw any attention. The Magi, for their part, were warned by God in a dream to leave by another route rather than go back to Herod with the news about Jesus. That bought Joseph enough time to pack up and get out of town. True to character, Herod sent his military troops into Bethlehem and killed all the young boys, but he missed his intended target. 
And that is the story of the men who dropped by for the first Christmas in Bethlehem. Oh, and one final thing. Why was it that God needed the Magi to come and do what they did with Jesus? Well, think about it for a minute. Jesus went to his own people, the Jews. And what happened when he went there? Nothing. They were paying no attention. They couldn't have cared less if he was there, apparently. They didn't care enough to pay attention to the prophecies and figure out that he was supposed to be there at that time. And when they did figure out that he was there, or at least one of them, they tried to kill him. So the Jews were not going to be the ones to recognize Jesus as king. But God wanted him recognized as king. So he sent the kingmakers there in order to do the job that the Jews wouldn't do. And isn't it ironic that the first people to recognize the kingship of Jesus were pagan Gentiles from the Near East, from Persia of all places. So it's irony. God loves irony. We all love irony. And that is the conclusion of the story of the wise men. Next week, we're going to get back to our examination of the world and what God means when he tells us to get the heck out of it. Until then, if you found this podcast interesting, important, or even somewhat long and drony, but at least kind of entertaining, please recommend it to anyone at all, really anyone. It could even be some strange guy out on the street, or your family, or even, you know, friends and neighbors. Please give it a thumbs up or a happy face or five stars or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen so we can outwit the evil censor machines. This is not a commercial enterprise, and this podcast is limited to what I can invest in time and money, which is why it does not get posted as regularly as I would like. I'm kind of busy, you know, not to mention I'm really slow at writing content. Fortunately, God helps me because otherwise I wouldn't be able to prepare anything at all. So please put in a little prayer that this podcast will influence some lives positively for the glory of Christ. Underground Christian can be heard on a number of fine platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. Look for the bright green icon, because here at Underground Christian, we really like green. It's pretty. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. I will respond to the email just as soon as possible. Until next time, keep your head up and your mind clear to do the work of God. If it turns out that you don't want to do the work of God because you have a heart like stone toward God, well, there's a free limited time offer for you to get a new heart of flesh from him. You just have to ask. But don't wait because supplies are limited.